you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Kai Davis. Hey, hey, hey. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk about pricing and positioning. Which one of you wants to take a shot at describing what we're talking about? So this was a question that came in from my mailing list, and I, I think it's a really, really interesting question. And the question is, how do I position myself to be able to charge premium rates for my services? And I find it to be a fascinating question because I think there's an aspect of positioning that relates directly to your pricing. If you're undercharging relative to the market, you're going to look like a discount uh, a service provider. If you're charging a higher rate, you're going to look like a premium service provider. So I think a conversation around positioning and pricing and how they relate and interrelate to each other could be really, really fascinating between the three of us. I'll jump in there and say um, this is... Uh, thematically related to I'm trying to look up the episode number here um, yeah freelancer show episode 269 Jonathan and Kai and I were talking about positioning a fair bit there and just to further set this up and piggyback on what Kai said price is a part of positioning which is positioning really is how you're thought of by people in the market you're trying to reach Price is a part of that, and it's actually a big part of it, and we really kind of swept aside any detailed discussion of that in episode 269, and, and I think this is our not long-suppressed desire <laughs> to return to that subject. So I just wanted to tack that on to the end of what Kai was saying. No, well, perfect, perfect. Well, I think we've all heard, and maybe it was Patrick McKenzie who I first heard say this, but charge more. Right. Like, so, you know, someone starts off uh, and, and I've heard this several times from other people, which is you don't have enough clients charge more because if you start charging more then you demonstrate expertise. You demonstrate seriousness. People will take you more seriously on and on and on. And it's I think it's a rocky road to get there. I don't think it's so, nearly as easy as well. I was charging fifty dollars an hour. Good thing Jonathan's not here. I was charging fifty dollars an hour. I'll just start charging $500 an hour and people will flock to me, right? There, it's much more nuanced than that. But I definitely think that there is something to the idea of if you look too cheap, then you'll be treated as very cheap. Absolutely. I, I Another person wrote it on my email list a few weeks ago saying they have a number of people who are approaching them, want to work with them, keep asking for free work, but they just can't get that first paid project. And my question to them was, well, the next person who asks you for a free project, why don't you say this is a paid project and this is what it will cost? And it was a light bulb moment for them. So I think you absolutely are right. It's nuanced. You can't go from 50 an hour to 500 an hour and expect for it to magically work itself out. But you can say, well, looking at the market, where do my prices sort of signal me as being? What do my prices say about the quality of my services or what to expect? If people are selling similar services for 10 times the price, well, does that mean I'm the affordable, low-cost option? Or does it mean that people are going to look at my services and say, how are they able to, to deliver this package for such a low price? So I think there's a need to move prices up market to signal, but you can't 
or in most cases can't immediately jump from, hey, 50 an hour to 500 an hour. It's too jarring. It's almost like moving to a completely different target market. The type of people in this hypothetical who are seeking out $500 an hour services may in fact be a different target market or a different set of the target market of the people searching out the $50 an hour services. I have heard uh, numerous stories about people putting in proposals for projects in, in the situation where they've kind of got a, a quote unquote inside man, you know, somebody inside the company mm-hmm. who is trying to help them win that project. And that person is not the decision maker, but they, they, you know, they have insight into the process by which the decision is going to be made. And specifically they've seen previous iterations or cycles of, you know, freelancers, uh, vendors being hired and, and they will say, you can't price it that low that they won't go for that because it, you know, it, Kai talked about signaling and, and price is one of the things that we look at when we're trying to make a decision where we don't, where there's some element of risk or uncertainty Mm-hmm. When that mm-hmm. happens, and, and then we maybe should dive deeper into that because I think that's kind of a key to what we're talking about here. Anyway, I, I've heard numerous examples where people have that situation where they've got kind of an inside track and they, they're talking to somebody in the company and they show the proposal before they submit it. And that inside person says, oh, no, you have to raise the price. Like they're never going to sign off on that because the price is too low because it sends a signal that maybe the service won't be there. Maybe you're doing it for the, you know, pricing low for the best of intentions, but we know from previous experience that what happens is, you know, the vendor gets resentful because they price too low or, you know, scope creep happens or whatever. So it's just funny to reflect on those times when I've I've heard of that happening because um, that's, that's, I think a lot of us come from this origin in terms of working for ourselves where we feel like we don't have a lot of advantages. We don't have a lot of, you know, differentiators or advantages. And so price is the lever we kind of default to and specifically lowering the price. That's the lever mm-hmm. we default to in order to try to create a competitive advantage, especially when you're new, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am cheaper than the others. Thus people will come to me and want to hire me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm but, thinking um, but that. that's bad oh. overall, right? Like, like I, I mean, over, over, over time, I mean, I've, I have a client now where I do some training for them online for people in the U.S., and they're very happy to have me do that because they're paying my Israeli rates, which are way lower than my American rates. So I see that, like, I'm seen by them as sort of the cheap help. Now, the fact is my Israeli rates are pretty reasonable, and I'm, you know, doing fine, um, but... I definitely think that they value me less than they do their American vendors because they're paying me significantly less. Like, oh, it's like the you know, the cheap foreign help, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if there's a way to break out of that with an existing client. In many ways, it has to be, I think, a, a new client, a different client. So I, I just, in fact, <laughs> in fact, I suggested them, why don't I come and do some classes in person? And they said, really, what would that be? And I said, well, you know, it's pretty standard to charge such and such a person in the U.S. And they said. Why would we fly you out here to do that? So that was that was the end of that short conversation. Um, so but the you, pricing you didn't have a comeback for that. Um, I tried. Okay. I said, well, actually, I think that in-person training is significantly um, more effective than online training, hmm. um, and I think it would be a better experience, and they'll learn more and get a bigger ROI. Mm-hmm. And the answer was maybe, but not that much. <laughs> and we have vendors already. Got it. So in a sense, you became price locked in their mind as a lower priced provider and trying to break up to that next level. They already have vendors at that price point. You need to not only put yourself on the same level as those other vendors, but demonstrate why your offerings are even better than those other vendors. So while the pricing you currently have works great for remote work, it sort of tied your hands when it comes to working with them in the more profitable, more impactful framework you prefer. That's right. That's right. So let's let's uh, dive in deep. There's 
one question to start with. Why do you guys think price sends a signal? Why why is it like not just a neutral thing, but it, it seems to have meaning? So how about this, right? Like, I mean, we, we don't drink a lot of wine, but we definitely drink some wine. And, um, you know, I often would get wine from the supermarket, which was, you know, an okay price. And for a while, we were going to this fancy schmancy wine store where, like, the price was easily twice as much per bottle. And we were so happy. We're like, wow, this is great wine. Now, was it really much better than supermarket wine? Yes. Was it twice as good? Not clear. But I think part of us also wanted it to be, well, wanted to feel that it was much better because like the, the label on the outside or the price tag on the outside was much higher. And we want to associate that higher price with value. So sort of sight unseen and not being experts of any sort in wine, we said, well, higher price must equal higher value. And I think it's similar in many ways to consultants, right? You hire someone and they're high priced like, well, you know, they've been doing this for a while. They must be able to justify that higher price. They must be better or they must be good enough to be able to to get it. And so I think we all do that in products and services that we hire until sort of proven wrong. I agree. I th- By the way, I uh, can't help but mention that I think the same thing applies with someone who's specialized. It's like, oh, they're specialized. That must mean they have this expertise or they've been through some kind of rigorous training. Like we get that from more regulated industries like, you know, the healthcare services and so forth, where you literally can't call yourself a brain surgeon, I think, unless you've, you know, have the corresponding certification and training and licensing and all that stuff. So I, it sounds like you're saying Reuben, that we, we sort of take advantage of a mental heuristic that associates higher price with something desirable, higher quality, better something, right? That's right. That's right. That we, we've been trained or we inherently believe, or for whatever reason it is, we sort of figure if it, if it's priced higher, then that must be justified in some way. It can't just be arbitrary. Yeah, I think to comparing two service offerings and if there's any uncertainty on the buyer's part, how am I supposed to tell these two apart? Yeah, we have the service provider or consultant. How am I supposed to rank them? Can I trust their testimonials? How do I know they'll achieve the outcome? Well, if one's saying I'm going to do it for you for 1500 and one's saying I'm going to do it for you for 5000 there's going to be a sense of confidence that comes with that higher price because, whoa, what do they know that means it's going to cost more? What am I going to receive as additional benefits because of the higher price? What am I losing out on with the lower priced offering? So I think there is exactly as you pointed out, this sort of mental heuristic where we see a higher priced offering and we say, well, it's higher priced. It must be a better offering or it must be better for my needs. And we shortcut the decision-making process and head down that path. I saw the exact thing in place when I was working in the construction industry. Oftentimes, uh, we'd submit a proposal and a higher price proposal would be picked because the higher price proposal would be signaling higher quality, while the lower price proposal would be signaling potentially increased risk. By the way, I mean... I, maybe it's a cultural thing or something, but I'm pretty sure that in Israel, I mean, it's happened to me definitely many times. If I try to like just come in with a very high price, people say, that's ridiculous. Like we can get that for much less. And I'll even sometimes try to give the, you know, quality uh, assurance. And they'll be like, it does not matter. We are not paying rates like that. So mm-hmm. it depends on the company, it depends on the client. And by the way, I'm willing to say, okay, those are clients I'm not going to work with. And I'll just walk away. Oh, interesting. So, Reuven, you're in this <clears throat> privileged position of sort of seeing into both, into multiple cultures, like including uh, Chinese culture, right? So why do you think that is? Like why, 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 I mean, I, I know you've kind of mentioned this multiple times before on the show. Do you have any theories about why, why you see that behavior in Israeli clients and not elsewhere? So I think if there's an, an overriding ethos uh, behind Israeli culture, it's don't be a sucker. Like, okay. don't be taken advantage of. And you hear this all the time. Like, kids from a young age, like, the, the term in uh, Hebrew is, you know, it's not even pure Hebrew, is the fryo. Like, I'm not a fryo. You're mm-hmm. not going to take advantage of me. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, the idea that I would come to a company 
and I would charge them, you know, twice what someone else is charging them, and they would accept this is crazy talk. I mean, really, what? Like, clearly, I must just be trying to rip them off. But I think I think that's like the other side of the same coin, right? I think I think there's a. It's just pointing to the fine line between charging more, sending a signal that you're really good, and charging more being seen as piggish. And it depends on sort of who you're talking to and where and when, and also how desperate they are, right? Like I have a company that called me and said, please, 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 like we desperately need help doing something on Ruby on Rails. And I gave them what I thought was like a crazy high figure. And they're like, okay, that's fine. Mm. So, so, and then this um, I was mean, an, and, sorry, this was an Israeli company, just to be clear. Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Israeli company. So it depends on time and circumstance. And um, I mean, I definitely have raised my, um, my training rates in Israel over the last year mm-hmm. uh, from what they were before. And, um, and so I think while some people are surprised by them and they say, well, we don't budget for that. I say, okay, that's like, that's why I charge and enough companies are willing to pay that that's okay. And they do see it as a quality thing. Interesting. So it's, it's not only cultural. It's also like what person, what time, what budget, what company. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think you can necessarily make like, broad statements about who was doing what, where, and when. Um, but definitely this whole idea of, well, charge more and people will come flocking to you and respect you more. I think that's v- largely an American thing, or maybe some places in Europe too. I'm aware that with certain luxury products in the Chinese market, you you have to charge absolute nosebleed prices for that I don't know, I guess in America, currently we would say the 1%, right? Like like people who are considered super rich, for them to even consider it in, in the Chinese market, it has to be like astronomically priced. And I don't know, I, I don't know if that only applies to like physical products or also services. Have you seen any differences? This is turning into me picking Ruben's brain about all these different markets, but... Have you seen any differences in terms of pricing services in the Chinese market, Ruben? I don't know enough about pricing services there to tell okay. you. Okay. Um, but I know that there are definitely, uh, you know, there there is a growing number of very affluent Chinese, and there's also definitely a sense of you know conspicuous conspicuous consumption. So that, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about with with the product side of things. Yeah, yeah, and and besides, like some some comedians said years ago, you know, in China, if you're a one in a thousand kind of guy, then there are, there are a million people just like you. So, um, <laughs> you know, you know, it might be the one percent, but there's a lot of one percenters out there um, who have money and who are spending it. Yeah. And I think there are plenty of people who are saying, I don't need to worry about the rest of the market. That one percent is so huge that I'll I'll just deal with that. Got it. But the companies I deal with are very price sensitive because I've been told, like in negotiating prices for training, I've been told if you raise your prices anymore, they will they will leave you, and they have done that to other trainers. Hmm. Kai, most of your clients have been U.S. based. Is that right? Uh, a decent portion. I'd say seventy percent U.S. based, thirty percent international. Hmm. What have you noticed about uh, pricing, particular, you know, specifics about different uh, cultures and countries and so forth? Not so much about cultures and countries, but I have noticed that there are almost these invisible tiers where if you're pricing below a certain threshold in an industry or in a market, you lose a sense of respect. I think it moves you down the value chain to being seen as a pair of hands, a commodity, somebody who's replaceable, where if you're charging a higher amount, as you alluded to earlier, as we discussed on a previous episode, it signifies you have specialization. It signifies that you are an expert, you're an authority. Who are you to charge $500 an hour for a phone call? Well, I have the authority and the expertise to back it up, where if you're charging $50 for that phone call, Uh, What value is somebody really going to place on it if all it costs them is a 50 spot? So I've seen these thresholds in pricing where if you're below a certain invisible threshold, you lose respect of prospects, respects of leads, respect of clients. If you're above that threshold, instead it's a signal of authority and expertise. But it doesn't really uh, uh, differentiate in my experience from region to region or culture to culture. Mm Mm-hmm.
So how, how, aside from just sort of announcing to the world or to your clients, oh, by the way, I'm charging you more, how do you, and this has always been sort of a curious thing for me because I am trying to break into the American uh, training market more where I know they, you know, they pay much more. So how do you sort of let these clients find you? Because that's my impression is sort of a good way to do it. Like, okay, I'm going to raise my prices and then people will magically flock to me. I realize it's not that easy. But who do you announce this price raise to and how? And how do you then sort of let it be known, oh, by the way, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm the snooty brand that you want to go with as opposed to the cheapo brand that I was before. <laughs> Ruben, can I throw in a funny story that relates perfectly to what you just said? Yeah, sure. So I've got a guy in my accelerator program, my uh, position accelerator program. He has stumbled ac across the fact that in some cases, Upwork can be a very valuable research tool. Most people think Upwork is a place you go when you don't have any other options or you're just starting out and you're kind of this sort of bottom feeding market. But it is, it, you know, it's sort of a, a it's a two-sided market that has enough volume on both sides that there's plenty of other things that can happen on Upwork other than just getting, you know, development work for $15 an hour. <laughs> so he's kind of used it to test the demand of a very specific niche market for a very specific niche service. And I think he was using a rate of 160 an hour. Uh, he bumped it to 250 an hour and started getting twice the number of leads coming in. Now, there's some context around that. Maybe Upwork in their, you know, sorting algorithm features people who've recently made changes to their profiles or does some other stuff. So it's not like a, a pure, you know, one, one factor test. But still, just anecdotally, it feels so crazy to do that, to, you know, go to some place where you're used to getting X number of leads per week or whatever and dramatically increase your rate. This is not an incremental increase from 160 to 250. That's a pretty dramatic increase. And then see the volume go up. It kind of defies your expectations about supply and demand and really lends credence to this idea that the price is a signaling mechanism or it maybe just doesn't matter. Anyway, funny story to set that up because wow. I think you're right, Ruben, that generally you can't just do that and all of a sudden start getting a different type of client the next day. You can't just dramatically increase your published pricing and all of a sudden start getting better clients. I really don't think, I think it takes time. But I just had to throw I, that story of it actually happening super fast because it's so funny. I think if you have the marketing channels built for your business, just marketing systems that are bringing in some amount of leads consistently, if you do increase your prices, a different set of those leads will raise their hands and say, hey, yo, I'm, I'm interested in what you're selling. Partly because I think like if your service is priced too low, you encounter this experience, this effect, and I mostly notice this myself when it comes to purchasing products. Oh, this is pretty cheap. Let me think about it. It sits in the cart. I never end up buying it. And it's three weeks later and I've never bought the thing. But if it's higher priced, it feels like a more urgent decision. Oh, this developer or oh, this service provider is $250 an hour or $300 an hour. They're probably pretty in demand if they're able to charge rates like this. I better move faster and get in touch with them. So I think while an overnight transformation is the 1%, the one in a million, if you do have consistent marketing systems, bringing people to your site, bringing people to your service offerings, telling people about what you sell or what you offer and the solutions you uh, provide and raise your prices, a different segment of those people coming to your site will say, hey, I'm interested because they now see themselves as falling into the right bucket for your service offerings. Yeah, that's Kai, one of the, a good point. Sorry. Go ahead, Ruben. Well, well, one of the things you just said, Kai, I think he speaks volumes. So... It's true, I think, that raising your prices can send that signal. But for me, it's been a combination of things. It's been raising prices while also having scarcity. So if mm -hmm. I were to go to people and say, well, I, um, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm now charging a ton for my courses, they'd be like, okay, yeah, you're just being piggish. But if I say, I'm now charging a ton for my courses, and oh, by the way, my next availability is in eight months because everything has been taken until then. That leads people to wonder, wait a second, right? Like may, maybe this guy isn't just a crazy guy. You know, maybe he's not just a pig. Maybe he's uh, uh, like a talented pig. Um, and we should, we should hire him. 
No, I think that that speaks to it. And you're right. There needs to be that scarcity or that let, let's go beyond it and say there needs to be some element of value in there, that there needs to be something that motivates the person to make a decision now rather than a decision later or down the line. And hey, my services are filling up fast or I'm only accepting two more clients this quarter. Elements like that are, I think, completely ethical marketing elements to include and that play very well with a price increase or play very well with positioning yourself as a premium service provider because if you're the premium choice, if you're the luxury service provider, you're going to have a more limited quantity. You're only going to be able to make yourselves available for a smaller number of clients. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Kai, um, let's add one more layer of confusion to this question so I, I agree with your your premise that like having a sufficient volume of leads gives you all this this sort of latitude and flexibility about i mean maybe you could just call it doing pricing experiments or making changes and moving up market or other types of changes you might want to make right mm -hmm. um do you think once people have made up their mind do you think they're open to changing it and when it, so back to the example of changing your price, someone checks you out, experiences your marketing, whatever that is, and is like, well, they seem like the budget option. Is, do you think that's like fixed in all time in their head <laughs> and they're kind of lost to you as someone who might buy your services at a premium price point? Or I'm kind of curious what, what both you guys think about that. That's a really, really good question. I think it, in my mind, it brings up the question of, well, how how sticky and memorable is your marketing? Will people remember you a month, three months, 12 months down the line? Or will they show up at your site again and be like, oh, this seems like the premium option I've been looking for and right. not recall that 12 months ago, it was a different price point. I'm not sure on that. I think that to jump back to the value comment I made earlier, if you couple that price increase with a perceived increase in value, then it's easier for people to sort of dismiss that old notion of you and say, oh, you are the premium service provider. That might look like case studies, testimonials, work samples, uh, video testimonials, elements like that that just show people that, oh, people are getting a lot of value out of this. It makes sense that it's priced at this higher price point. I should move forward with this. Yeah, that kind of makes me think of the idea. Like in the product world, people will relaunch a product that – maybe did okay and they're just relaunching it or maybe it didn't do okay and they're like, okay, let's, let's fix this. I'm going to relaunch it. I don't love the idea of launches anyway, but what they're really saying is I'm going to bring this to market and try to generate some excitement and urgency with a different, a, a slightly different offer or a dramatically different offer. Mm -hmm. Maybe the sort of core product is the same, but going to add some bonuses or change the marketing or something like that. And I, that sort of corresponds to what you're saying is you, you could maybe present a refreshed or improved value proposition to people who had already sort of made up their mind and have a chance at, at changing their mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very much so. And uh, uh, I think to Ruben's question earlier, who are you getting in contact with to advertise this higher price point to? I think of our mutual friend Nick DeSabato and his service Draft Revise where he does A-B testing for e-commerce companies. He's increased the price over time and I don't think he's necessarily gone out and directly advertised, oh, hey, the price has now gone up. This is more of a luxury offering or this is fit for a seven-figure store. Instead, he's just raised the price and as the leads naturally come to him, they encounter that higher price point on the sales page. Somebody might circle back and say, oh, hey, six months ago this was half the price or six months ago you had a price listed here and now you don't. What's the deal? How much does this cost? And then he's able to move them forward into a conversation explaining the value of the service, what's changed over the last six months, and the value that people receive at this higher price point. So I think part of it might be you do raise the prices and people through your marketing systems come to you. And that allows you to then sell them on this higher price point. It might not even be worth thinking about the person who encountered that lower price point. They decided not to bite. Let's focus on the new leads, the new prospects who are coming to us through the marketing systems and channels we have built up now. Yeah, I agree that um, that saying sales cures all ills. I think you can <laughs> translate that and say yeah, an abundance of inbound leads gives you so many options to mm -hmm. uh, make things better. 
This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash freelancershow. Now, Kai, you you mentioned that uh, Nick D has raised his prices. I assume that he's raised them incrementally. Right? He didn't just sort of wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to charge 10 times as much, but you know, with every month, every six months, every quarter, whatever it is, he says, I'm going to raise it a bit more and see if I can get away with this. Right? Mm-hmm. And, if, and if he does, then great. Um, so far, he's been able to, so bully for him. Um, but I mean, that's sort of been the strategy that I've used, that I've sort of gone up and up and up as I get new clients. And my old clients mm-hmm. are sort of grandfather. And then at a certain point, I said to them, you know, you are now my lowest paying client. Um, and, and then they're like, oh, well, I, I guess, you know, we should really pay market rates. Um, but by then, you know, I've already got a bunch of other people paying this higher amount. So even if they leave me or yell at me, I don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I just sort of keep, keep doing that. So every, I don't know, year and a half, two years, I raise my rates a bit. Um, and, um, you know, u- using that same sort of thing, new clients pay more old clients, especially ones who give me a lot of work. I sort of go to them at some point, raise the rates. And so it's always rising. It also means, by the way, and my clients shouldn't know this, I charge different clients different amounts, partly as a market experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually got a call from a client today saying, hey, we'd really like you to give us a Python class. Do you have time the next month? And I said, actually, as it happens, I do have time next month because someone else canceled. And I said, great. We know that you usually have a, um, a limit of 16 people um, in your classes, but we want to have 40 can we pay a lot more and get that? I thought, you know what? Let's give it a shot. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Maybe maybe I've been artificially limiting the sizes of my classes for no good reason. I can make much more in a day. Sure. Let, let's try it. Um, so so that like I'm constantly experimenting with pricing and seeing sort of what I can get away with and what constellation is considered acceptable um, to maximize like my income. But also I want to make sure that they're getting value, right? I, I, there's, especially in a course that I see as highly interactive, I want to make sure that they don't just see I'm sitting up there and lecturing, but that they can mm-hmm. talk to me, ask me for questions and so forth. And if they think so, then I've learned something new about how I can position my courses. Now, I like that approach and strategy a lot, and I think you're absolutely right. It's it's fundamentally about incrementally increasing your rates over time and moving towards being that higher-priced offering in the market. I think your approach to... Uh, communicating with and letting go those older clients who are paying the grandfathered in rate is perfect. And every freelancer listening to this should do the same. You incrementally raise your prices. You get to the point where you notice, oh, you know, this 10% of my client list, they're paying these lower grandfathered in rates. You communicate to them, let them know, hey, you're paying towards the bottom of my rate scale or you're actually my lowest paying client right now. I'm booked up. Demand is higher. Uh, there's a couple paths forward here. We could increase the rate to here. We could end our contract in X months and transition out or something else, whichever makes the most sense. But presenting it as a choice of yeses to the client to either move forward with you at your new higher premium rates or part ways freeing up a client slot for your new higher premium rates. Right. And and I always was always I was always worried that clients will talk and compare rates with one another. From my experience, they don't. At least these companies mm-hmm. don't. So, you know, if company A is paying one rate and they refer you to company B, you can give a higher rate to company B. And it, it's it's not like they're going to call company A and say, are, you, are they charging you this much? Or at least that's not my experience. Yep, same. It's been very, very rare that clients or prospects have communicated with each other or referrals have shared pricing information with someone else. And when it has happened... I've just subtly course corrected it and said, oh, yes, you know, they are paying that rate. And that's because there's some specifics to that contract. But let's talk more about your business and how I can help you. And 
we refocus and reframe the conversation on their business. Even if they come in saying, oh, we know that, you know, uh, ACO over there is paying half of what you're quoting me. Well, yes, let's talk about where the value is for your business. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of different ways to approach this, but I think, as you said, Ruben, charging more is one of the essential philosophies and essential steps there. Like to continually increase your rate should be something that every freelancer listening to this podcast should strive for. You should continually be raising your rates and be experimenting with higher pricing points for your service offerings and with your clients to see how the market reacts. I know that I've taken service offerings that I had priced at $500 a month and raised them up to $4,500 a month over time and had the same amount of lead flow coming in. But the people who are contacting me for that higher price service offering were saying, I really want this. They were better qualified clients. They were better fits. And it made more sense. And what I really saw was as I increased the rate for my services, be it one-off services or recurring monthly services, the quality of the leads that came to me skyrocketed. Even if it was the same amount of overall leads, I definitely noticed a distinct difference in the quality of people who were contacting me pre-price raises and post-price raises. Just because that higher price rate sends off a signal I'm serious about this. I'm here to do business. I'm focused on making sure you get a return on investment. I'm focused on making sure we achieve this outcome. And that attracts good clients. That attracts the high quality clients we all want to work with. And oftentimes when I coach a freelancer or a consultant and they're dealing with an issue of continual bad clients or continual bad fit clients, one of the first areas I'll look at is their pricing and see, well, what are you charging clients? Because if that price is sending a signal out there, is it unintentionally attracting poor fit clients who are bargain shopping. If it is, let's raise the rates. Let's see if that's able to, A, get the tire kickers out the door and make sure that the people who are getting in touch with us are prime saying, oh, okay, we understand that it's going to be $200 an hour. We are perfectly prepared to pay for that. Where before the clients coming to you might be saying, hey, $50 an hour, that's way too much. Can't you do it for 30 an hour? So pricing plays a big effect there as well, I'd argue. I think that's one of the reasons why pricing changes don't follow some kind of simplistic supply demand curve. I think a lot of us get this idea that if we price our services, we'll just use dollars per hour because that's a convenient way to kind of abstract a lot of other things out of it. If the service is a hundred dollars an hour and over the course of the year, uh, 20 people are interested if we go to $200 an hour, then somehow just 10 people are going to be interested. So if we double the price, only half will be interested. And I know that, you know, even in <laughs> the most simple understanding of economics, it's not a straight line curve. It's an actual curve. But still, I think we kind of, there's something in us as freelancers and independent service providers that encourages us to think in that kind of simplistic way. But what you put your finger on just now, Kai, I think is part of the reason why it doesn't really work that way. I mean, even if 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 raising the price lowers the demand, that's not the only change. Um, mm -hmm. With fewer clients, you are less stressed out. Or with better clients, you are less angry <laughs> at the clients you wish you hadn't uh, taken on, which is really right. you, you being angry at yourself and just kind of projecting that onto the clients. But um, all that stuff, I think, kind of distorts, it adds complexity to the what we think is a simple situation of higher price, lower demand. It's really not mm -hmm. so simple, is it? It isn't. And uh, jumping back a thread, I, I mean, I, when I was starting off as a freelancer, I often heard, hey, you know, you want to work less but make the same amount of money or make more money. Well, double your rate, work with half the clients, and boom, the equation works. And I think maybe one of the reasons we have this sort of linear relationship in our minds between how much we charge and what the demand and the number of leads we get is, is because of simple frameworks or simple mental frameworks like that. The concept holds true. Hey, you want to charge more, you'll be able to work with less clients, you'll have more free time, but it doesn't exactly follow a strict linear relationship. If I 2x my rate, I'm not going to get half a number of leads. I might get some percentage less number of leads, but if they're overall a better quality of lead, if I don't have to spend as much time qualifying them or pre-sales or selling them, suddenly I don't care as much because, well, if it doesn't close, that's fine. I know the next person who comes through, it'll be an easier sales process. Right. Or maybe you get less busy and maybe that hurts mm -hmm. financially, but 
you're smart and you invest that six month, uh, let's not call it a dry spell, but things are a little slower than usual. You're like, great, I've got some time I can now use to build up marketing systems that long term have this, you know, this really beneficial effect that I kind of, I quote unquote, funded that future pay payment by investing in better marketing now. And to do that, I had to, you know, eat ramen for six months or whatever. Like that's another mm-hmm. way in which it's not quite so simple as increase rates, demand goes down by a corresponding amount. Um, that that's a situation that can play out. So like, uh, so today I, I was uh, teaching and talking to the the client about, uh, you know, so we, we, we had all mixed up with what sort of course it was going to be beginner advanced, whatnot. And, um, I realized that one of my greatest allies in landing this client and making them happy was my competition. That it turns out that I have no idea who this other person was, but they brought someone to do the training who's apparently completely incompetent. And so I think they've been burned now and they realize, hmm, maybe we shouldn't have gone with the cheaper option or maybe we should, maybe it's worth paying more. So, I mean, it's not enough. I mean, this goes without saying it's not enough to charge more, but it's, you've also got to like, do a really, really good job because once you do that, and especially if they've compared you with and spoken with the competition, um, you might well have a client for life because they'll say, wow, we may be paid twice as much, but it was 100% worth it. You know, that's one of the things about more profitable work. I mean, part of charging more can mean you just work less and maybe profitability stays the same. But if it increases profitability, a lot of times you ha- you feel at liberty to be extravagant in terms of how you take care of your clients. Whereas before, maybe mm-hmm. you were like kind of just sort of doing the minimum <laughs> to meet what you felt like the requirements were for the project. But if you're charging more, you can give them a better experience. It's sort of like going to a hotel. Like I've stayed at a range of hotels all the way from, um, I don't even know if I can tell this story. This truck stop hotel in Asheville, North Carolina, when I was uh, much younger in college. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was just, I was on a road trip with a friend. (laughs) I reached over and uh, opened the, the, um, the, the drawer for the table, bedside table. And there was a used condom on top of the Gideon Bible (laughs) in this hotel. Like that's, that's probably one of the worst hotel experiences I've had. And then, you know, all the way up to like four star hotels. I don't think I've ever stayed in a five star hotel, but you get a bed and you get a good night's rest. I mean, you get, (laughs) you get an enclosed room, a bed and a bathroom. And, uh, I guess that doesn't count some of the hostels I've stayed in in Mexico. That goes a little bit lower to the shared bathroom territory. Anyway, it's, you know, sort of objectively the same thing, but the quality of the experience is way different. So if you're running a more Mm -hmm. profitable business, you can deliver just a different and hopefully much better customer experience to your clients. And, and that's, that's another thing about pricing that I think has a sort of beneficial self-reinforcing cycle thing when you can just like take such amazing care of your clients because you feel like you have the budget to do it for that project. That mm-hmm. turns into more really, really wonderful clients that you love working with. Completely, completely agreed on this. I mean, I, I have not banged this drum loudly before, but I'm a, a huge fan of charging more because it allows you to proportion out some amount of that rate and say, okay, great, I'm investing this into the client each month. Maybe you raise your rates and you start printing out a beautiful full color welcome packet and mailing it to each of your clients that you sign. That's going to be a huge impactful event for them. Oh my gosh, they sent me a welcome packet. You could send them a gift. You could send them a holiday gift. You could send follow-up. You're able to diversify the ways you're marketing to and interacting with your clients because you're charging a premium rate and can now afford to make these investments where if you were selling, say, a $500 service offering versus a $5,000 service offering, it may be harder within that $500 offering to find the funds to do these types of activities where on the $5,000 service offering, it's much easier to say, okay, hey, we just closed a deal. 5,000 came in, 500 of that we're spending on client retention. We are going to make sure this client has the best onboarding and best experience working with us possible. And that leads to more work and better work down the line. And more referrals. 
Yeah. I mean, and more referrals. I mean, the high tech industry, I always tell people this high tech people change jobs so often. And I feel like I take advantage of this, like not even directly or on purpose. But the mere fact is that people with whom I work, I can expect them to be at a different company in another year or two. And if they like what I did, they will mention this to their boss, their new boss. And, you know, what goes around comes around. If you did a good job, it, it will come up. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's a significant part of why specialization, you know, works oh, yeah. at all. I mean, part of it is the expertise thing, but part of it is just simply that gives you a little bit of an advantage uh, because your, you know, your point of contact leaves. They're likely to go to another company that's not dramatically different. In fact, it's likely to be in the same industry. And so you have gained a contact at a new company without doing any work on your end other than you know, the difficult work of deciding to specialize. Right. Anyway, that, that's a bit of a tangent, but, um, yeah. So we are so in I, favor, I think, as a group of people charging more. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that. Except the people I hire, yes. Um, exactly. Anybody who works with us, please lower your rates. That's the way to success. Alan Weiss, I think, uh, just as a tangent, had a wonderful, wonderful quote, and I think it's value-based fees, uh, uh, how do you deal with like, he's talking about pricing on value. How does he handle it when like a contractor or a consultant or a service provider he works with, like asks him what he writes about in his books. And he has this very, very funny to me side where statement is to the side where he says, oh, he just tells them the books don't sell that well. And I just always found that completely, completely funny. <laughs> don't even bother reading my stuff. Eh, it's not good. Yeah, it's 20 an hour. Great. Let's move forward. <laughs> I'm actually curious, by, so, so what do you guys think people should raise their rates by? Like by how much? Oh, that's a good question. I'd say, I mean, if I'm just going to toss a rule of thumb out there, I'd say raise your rates by 10 to 20% for your most popular service offerings in one of two circumstances, either every three months or after you have a major win for a client with that service offering. So somebody's hired you to do a thing, you did the thing, it was an outstanding success, raise your rate, get a testimonial, slap the testimonial up there. Or three months have gone by, clients have passed through, they've hired you for the service, they've enjoyed it. There may not have been any huge wins, but you've had three more months of client work and experience and authority building doing that service, raise your rate there. So I think either three months or after a major win and somewhere in the 10 to 25% range is a good price bump to uh, experiment with. And if people start objecting, lower the price down, uh, uh, temporarily add in something and then remove it as the value add and then remove it to drop the price back down. There's different things you could do to raise the price and then lower it as an experiment. But I think 10 to 25% every three-ish months is a good place to start. I think I'd, I would agree generally with that. Um, every time I've, in my own business, tried a sort of dramatic price increase, I'd say it's it's not really worked out in a way that's been satisfying to me. And I will fully, I'll be the first person to tell you that that's more of like an internal mindset thing, I think, than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like the opposite of what I tell the people I'm you know, being paid to provide advice to. Never try something just once and then make up your mind about it because that deprives you of the ability to see if there's a pattern there or maybe you just, you know, who's who's lucky on the first time they try everything the first time? Uh, nobody mm-hmm. I know. I mean, I guess I know a few people who seem exceptionally lucky, but there's always some kind of something going on in addition to just pure luck. So um, I think if you, I, I mean, that certainly there's a, a conventional wisdom about experimentation or testing that says you should try bold things in testing. You know, if you're testing copy to see what's going to perform better in, in a, like a direct marketing context or an e-commerce context. The advice is almost always, yeah, I mean, maybe you should test some small incremental changes, but you should include a few just sort of wild out of left field sort of changes just to see if you're missing something. But Mm -hmm. I think if you try to apply that advice directly to a solo freelancer, it just puts too much pressure on. So I'm more in favor of just kind of the steady incremental increases in most cases. I think that applies because again, the weak point for most of us is actually not our skills. 
It's not our ability to do what we said we did for clients. The weak point for most of us is to believe that we produce exceptional value for our clients. And so dramatic price increases put a lot of pressure on that psychological weak point. And that's why I sort of gravitate towards what Kai said. I guess I see 25% is pretty dramatic, but maybe I need to re reset my frame of reference. And I think you bring up an excellent point there. Like I gave those percentages without a context of, well, what are you charging or asking the question of what the rates are? If you're charging $10,000 is a 25% price bump noticeable for a client from 10,000 to 1250. Maybe, maybe not. $2,500 is a nice chunk of change to pick up if it was, Hey, I just raised the price and the client signed off on it. But I think we also have to weigh it compared to the value they're receiving, the social proof you have, uh, uh, the client's overall budget. I know I worked on a five-figure contract recently that I dramatically underpriced because I did not ask the necessary budget questions beforehand. And as a result of that, they constantly felt it was the lowest priority. They think I think they rescheduled the kickoff meeting by six months. And because I had priced it as a lower price service offering relative to what the company was making, this was a seven-figure firm, they just said, eh, no need to meet this month. Let's meet next month, next month, next month. Whereas for me, it was like, oh, great, this is a nice five-figure contract. So there's an interesting bit of perspective there where for them – What's $10,000 for me? It's like, woohoo, $10,000. <laughs> right. Uh, we should probably start wrapping up and go to picks. Do you guys have any more insights, ideas on this, uh, these subjects? I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes, but let's try it a different way. Any last words to offer before we uh, talk about it another time? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw in one more thought, which is really a whole other can of worms that I don't mean to open. I think there, you know, prices. From a, I'm always, of course, always going to default back to the how this looks from a positioning perspective, and like price is a signal for sure about what position you occupy in the market. But I think it's, I mean, I, I was really, I think I, for, I had had this noted down to ask you guys and then forgot whether you've paid a premium price for something that doesn't in other ways seem to be a premium product or service and mm -hmm. been happy with it or whether it has to be like kind of a total package thing, you know, like for a lot, for a while there, a lot of people were saying, Oh, App Apple's secret success in charging premium prices is that they put so much work into design and every aspect of the user experience or the customer experience is this kind of, you know, well thought out, really polished, like almost a luxury kind of experience. I mean, like, you know, if I went, to, if I rented a, or if I paid for a hotel room at a four star hotel and then the, like the bathroom wasn't clean and there was like some disgusting stuff on the floor in the bathroom, but everything else was nice. It would tarnish the experience. Right. So mm -hmm. that's me just trying to quickly pull together an example of how I think it's more than just price. Um, so I wouldn't want folks to get the idea that they can just charge a premium price and, and that's the only thing you have to change. I think, I think there's, there's a sort of total experience part of it that, that matters. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, that's me more opening up a can of worms than anything else. <laughs> so we should, not, right. we should not, uh, explore that tasty can of worms. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so let's do some picks. For you, the listeners of Freelancer Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Kai, what you got? 
I, I have an article that I'd love to recommend to all the listeners. It's uh, Argentina on uh, two stakes a day on uh, the wonderful site Idle Words, uh, written by the founder of Pinboard. And uh, we'll include the link in the show notes. But it's an excellent, excellent essay about steak. If you enjoy steak, if you enjoy reading things on the Internet, I highly recommend this article. It is one of my all time favorites. Excellent. Philip. You got any uh, any picks for us? I got a pick. What's my pick? Okay. For years, I was a pretty like the, you know. There's there's. I look back at back at parts of my life where I'm like, wow, I was a I came on a little too strong about that. I was a little too opinionated about that. <laughs> for years, I was um, someone who felt like if you if we're going to buy a blender, you should buy a, what's called a Vitamix blender, which is a pretty expensive blender. It's got some competition at the premium end of the market. But it's, you know, it's like it, I think the, the sort of entry point for the world of Vitamix blenders is like $300 or something. They might have gone down a bit in price since then, but they were always, you know, like the premium option. If you go to a smoothie place or some place that makes a smoothie, chances are you'll see some kind of like kind of commercial version of a Vitamix blender behind the mark behind the counter there. And I was just like, there's no other blender. Anybody else who buys, you know, an you know, some Hamilton Beach or oyster blender is just an idiot and they don't know what's up. <laughs> so it's not it's not like I went around saying this to people, but this is kind of what I thought inside my head. And then um, the Vitamix that I had some about a year or two ago uh, just stopped working as well. And I was like, I'm going to try one of these Nutribullets and see how it works out. <laughs> and I'm sort of a convert now. So I wanted to pick the Nutribullet Prime uh, blender. It's uh, actually pretty nice. And it, it kind of rewired how I thought about things. Normally, I really sort of hated stuff that's disposable, that you know, especially in terms of durable goods like appliances and stuff like that. And uh, I just sort of rejected the idea of getting an inexpensive blender like the Nutribullet, which is not the cheapest blender, but still it has some advantages in terms of cleanup and usability that are pretty compelling. And I don't know, I've sort of switched and probably didn't need to give you all that background on what a jerk I was. Um, a few years back about my Vitamix blender, but I, I remember just, a very early conversation between you and I, where I was, uh, uh espousing my love for the Ninja blender. And uh -huh. you were very, 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 very firm in your opinion that any blender, but the Vitamix was a very poor life choice. Oh, good. I'm glad someone who got to experience <laughs> the, uh, sort of, uh, I, I mean, I, I love having fun at my own expense sometimes, and I, I'm just glad you're able to affirm that I was a little bit overbearing <laughs> with my enthusiasm for this premium expensive product. Um, and yeah, man, this Nutribullet's great. I don't know how long it'll last. It certainly will not last as long as a Vitamix. I don't think it's as well made, but functionally mm. it's actually kind of a better fit for my life because it's less of a hassle to clean up and easier to use and, you know, kind of makes these individual size portions and yada, yada. So that's my pick this week. I tell you, the cleaning on blenders, that's the one factor I never really see called out. And it's the most painful part of owning a blender. Yep. Aside from cutting yourself on the blades. Ooh, God. I, I, I just remember my, my college roommate coming back to the dorm with a blender. I said, why'd you get that? He said, clearly to crush ice. And he, um, <laughs> and he opens it up and looks at the, the manual. And the first thing the manual says, note, do not use to crush ice. <laughs> 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 um, so, so I've, I've got two picks for this week. Um, first is a, a book. Uh, there's this guy named Charles Whelan, who I think he's a professor of economics now at Dartmouth. But he used to write for The Economist. Um, and he has a whole series of uh, what he calls, like I, I guess I could call the naked books. He has a book called Naked Statistics. Uh, and... Uh, and now I'm reading Naked Money. As he calls it, it's a revealing look at what it is and why it matters. And especially maybe in the wake of our uh, conversation today about what is value, what is value to one person versus another person. He has marvelous, marvelous 
uh, analogies uh, so that you can really understand if, if you're into economics or you think economics is really stupid um, or inscrutable, he just has these wonderful, wonderful descriptions about how it works, what money is, and, and why it's just a weird thing. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really enjoying this book as I had his previous books. Um, speaking of weird and money, so Israel came out with new bills or is coming out with new bills over the last year, this coming year. Um, and they sort of took out ads in the newspaper and I guess other places saying, watch out, we're having new bills come. Well, we know nothing from making such announcements. It turns out that Norway came out with new bills a few months ago, and their central bank came out with a music video that is hysterically funny. And and I know no Norwegian. I know no Norwegian culture, right? But it's still funny to me because they have cod, the fish, on their bills. So I'm going to give the the URL um, in the show notes. I strongly encourage you to watch this. It's really, really funny and shows how even the most um, staid and conservative of places, um, if they know how to do their marketing right, can really get people excited about what they're doing. So, um, so I'll put those up in the show notes. Anyway, thanks to Kai and Philip for yet another wonderful conversation. Thanks to all of you listening out there in podcast land. Uh, if you have suggestions for what we can and should talk about on the show, please do let us know. Um, our email address is in the show notes. I don't know what it is up end. And we'll be very happy to hear from you um, and consider your request. Thanks again to everyone, and we will see you next week. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.